podcast where we talk to you about women from history and mythology and literature and contemporaneity. How are you today, Lauren? Uh, I'm not too bad. I'm okay. I'm having a, a, a good day so far, I think. It's nice and sunny. It's warm. Um, spring has properly sprung. It has. There's green leaves on the trees. There's bees buzzing around. So, you know, all in all, that's that's pretty good. How Doing are you? Good. I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm actually just wondering how you're feeling about your impending trip to California that we talked about yeah, last, last time. time. Look, you know, my anxiety levels have been peaking and troughing over the last couple of weeks. Today I feel okay. I feel pretty zen. I've, <laughs> I've managed to organize all the money things and all the, you know... All the various things one needs to do. So I'm pretty sure I'm on top of everything. I have beds for most of the time yep, uh-huh. that I'm there now. Yeah. Have you done a practice pack? No. Do you what? Not pra- do you not a practice? A practice pack. I totally do a practice pack. That's the most anal thing I've ever heard. I know. Isn't it just? No, I'm like my flight's at wait, like 1.30 p.m., which means I'm going to pack probably at like 9 a.m. Oh, that's terrible. No, yeah. don't do that. No, I no, won't. No. Well, I'll try and pack the, the morning no. before. I'll pack on Sunday. Mm, I don't like it. No, I do a practice pack like a week in advance. A week? Yeah, because, no, listen to me. It's really, it's a clever thing to do because then what I do is I see how everything fits and make sure there's room for me to buy souvenirs, obviously, that's left in it. And then I always go, right, now I need to remove two things that I won't actually take. Right. And that gives me extra space. And then... I wash everything else. Okay. And it's got a week to dry. All right. Well, okay. okay. Well, that See? makes sense, I it suppose. makes such sense. All right. Okay. Anyway. I, yeah. I mean, I also just assumed that, like, they do have stores in the US. So I don't anything think they that do. I forget, I actually, it doesn't really matter that much. As long as I don't forget my passport. No. Nah. Everything else is replaceable. I think you're wrong. Whatever you don't take, you won't <laughs> That's be. It forever. That's it. It's like going camping. Yeah. If you don't take it. You're done. Yeah, you're screwed. They don't yeah. have shampoo or conditioner in the US. You can't buy it. They, they wash their hair with dirt. <laughs> they sure do. But anyway. anyway, so moving on from that, um, you know what? The reason I ask about your trip, though, is because what your trip means is that we're getting towards the end, the of, end of, the year. This, of the year. We're getting towards the end of our season That's right. of episodes. This is the penultimate episode. So, yeah, it's a second to last if yes. you don't know what penultimate means. Do you know I learned that word from the Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate oh, really? events books? Very That's where I learned that word Very. as a child. I don't recall where I learned that <laughs> In a, from a dictionary. Probably. I'm not sure. But, yeah, so that means we've got this episode today to go and, and next week or next fortnight next fortnight is the very last one for the year for 2017 so be excited but it's just for the season but we will be back after the summer so march yes. 2018 we're going to be back with season two you can look forward to that but we'll give you more details in next fortnight's episode and our very very last episode we'll give you all the details all that the you, things need, you to need to know, know. but there will be another announcement in today's show, so stick around till the very end. We're saving it. 
We'll save it. Announcement time is on its way. <laughs> are we ready to crack into the episode? Yeah, so what are we talking about today? I'm very excited about talking about this woman. I actually, she's not, she hasn't been on my list like the entire season, like some of them have been. As soon as I, I realized that I needed to talk about her, she like leapt up the charts. <laughs> this, is a, this is a woman called um, Rosaline Norton. She was known as the Witch of King's Cross. Oh, She's a uh, a bohemian and an occult trance artist um, and self-proclaimed witch who was active from like the the 40s through to the 60s and 70s in Sydney. Oh, cool. So we're coming right forward in time Mm. from where we've been for the last few episodes. And we're bringing it We're still in the art world. I didn't mean for that, for us to stay in the art world. But this is a very different art scene than we've been with our previous list of artists. So I'll just start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Rosaline. I think it's Rosaline. It might be Rosaline. It could be Rosaline, but I think it's Rosaline. According to a very short black and white clip that I watched on YouTube where she was interviewed. Pretty sure it's Rosaline. But do you know what, Lauren? We, I think we've established so far in our series one that we're really good at not pronouncing everything correctly. Yeah. So I, you know what? Let's just go with what Best guesses. Best guesses. Go with however you want to say it. What's happening? Rosaline sounds good to me. Rosaline. She was born on the 2nd of October in 1917 in Dunedin, New Zealand, auspiciously at four o'clock in the morning during a thunderstorm. Oh, that is auspicious. Mm, and it was a bit of a prophetic birth for a couple of reasons, not only because of the storm, but also because little baby Rowie, who she was known by mm-hmm. her friends and family, Rowie, had little pointed ears, mm. two blue markings on her knee, which she later said she felt were important in a way that she couldn't define. Well, like birthmarks? Birthmarks. Two little blue birthmarks on her knee and a strip of flesh from her armpit to her waist. What? Which she said was a variant of the extra nipple and that she later claimed marked her physically as destined to become a witch. Uh, wait. What do you mean by strip of flesh? No, well, I don't know. I it so it's an extra strip of flesh. Because I've got some flesh from my armpit to my waist, but it's just part of my. I think. Like, I mean, I imagine it to be something. I mean, they call it an extra nipple, what? like a variant of the extra nipple. So I actually, I kind of pictured it to be like a stringy bit of flesh <laughs> connecting it. I don't know. That was just in my imagination because there's no images <laughs> like that I a could skin find. Tag? Maybe. Do you know what? I think the word skin tag is the most revolting. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's, just, it's a gross. It is a horrible connection of words. Skin tag. Skin tag. Yuck. It's a disgusting. <laughs> skin tags are not that bad. No. In, the, in and of themselves. It's just the, the word. word. That is yeah. gross. So, so potentially that is A witchy. What's... She had a witchy skin tag. Yes. But all these markings she later. She said, yeah, she herself kind of, you know. Embraced Claimed it. these as yeah. like. I was destined to be a witch from the moment of my birth because of all of these things. There was also some hints in her childhood, I suppose. Um, She was the youngest of three girls and her two sisters were much older than her. They're 10 and 12 years older than her. And as a child, she preferred her own company to that of other children and began to kind of retreat into her own fantasy world and was quite a bit of an outsider quite early and apparently at heart she really did get along with her family like she she does love her mother and her sisters but she still was quite rebellious and had a lot of problems with authority oh, yeah. um she fought with her mother 
and other authority figures all the time. And after her father, who was a uh, master mariner, moved the family to Sydney in 1925, One of the things that she did to assert her independence was she took to sleeping in a tent in the backyard. This went on for three years. And in this tent, she kept like a menagerie of witchy pets. She had cats, lizards, tortoises, rats, dogs, a goat. And this is the best one. A spider named Horatius (laughs) who guarded the entrance to her tent and would like frighten off her sisters and everyone who came to bother her. Yeah. If you have a goat in a tent, I feel like the goat would eat the tent. I mean, I imagine the goat goat lived in the garden. Okay, yeah. Because I feel like a goat would eat a tent pretty quickly. I think that most of those pets probably lived in the garden and she just like... Not inside the tent. Just like kept. That does sound... But she was very like connected with nature very early in her life Mm. and animals. Um, And all of those animals are very witchy animals too. Like they're not, you know... Living in a tent full of animals kind of sounds like my idea of, like, ideal heaven. Like, like perfect life. Perfect life. <laughs> oh, I live in a tent full of cats. <laughs> it's a natural tent. I'm a happy woman. <laughs> she also went on hunger strike, demanding her right to eat alone. This is what she is a child, a small child, right? How's, how small? What, like, um, 10? Yeah, like around like eight to ten ish. I think this is when she was living in the garden because she liked to eat her dinner on the roof and in other strange places. And so she, yeah, went on hunger strike to demand her right to not have to eat dinner at the kitchen table with everybody else, but to be able to eat on the roof. I imagine surrounded by her menagerie of animals. Basic Um, human rights. Yeah. She described her childhood as a quote, generally wearisome period of senseless shibboleths, prying adults, detestable or depressing children whom I was supposed to like, and parental reproaches so (laughs) she was you know a pretty outspoken independent young woman yeah right there seems to be no doubt that she became interested in the occult from a very early age apparently when she was just three and a half years old she started drawing these creatures that she called nothing beasts and flippers Mm. um and they were sort of like ghosty like creatures also as she got a little bit older she read People like Lovecraft, so she became quite influenced by him. And a lot of these dark creatures started to make her way into her art. She also apparently had quite like psychic and visionary dreams. One of these, she would see a woman in grey at the end of her bed. And once she dreamed of a house that she later found in Chatswood, somewhere she had never been before. Okay, so, to those two things, A, I have also dreamt of a house that I then eventually went to in life. And it found. Was, it wasn't in Chatswood, <laughs> but that has happened to me before. Mm. And B, the grey lady at the end of the bed. That's a pretty that's common That's a one. really common yeah. one. That's yeah. such a common I one. I think both of those things are, because, like, I can't picture a particular house, but I used to have quite a vivid memory of a particular kind of brickwork that I remembered <laughs> yeah, like right. it was really yeah <laughs> I guess that's a a lame version of that <laughs> it's very specific yeah <laughs> she attended the Church of England school in Chatswood but her drawings of these demons and ghouls and vampires particularly <laughs> her rendition of the dance macabre oh yeah <laughs> filled with like all of these grotesque <laughs> like creatures and horrible things unsurprisingly were found a bit disruptive and she was thought to be a bit of a corruptive influence on the other girls and so when she was 14 she was expelled oh 
harsh. Yeah, so she was a bit disheartened, but it turned out to be not a bad thing because it gave her the opportunity to study art at the East Sydney Technical College. And so here she was trained by Rainer Hoff, an artist that she greatly admired and who encouraged these kind of like pagan themes in her art. Mm. So turns out it wasn't so bad. This is reminding me a lot of Leonora Carrington. Yeah, there are very similar like childhoods here. The mm-hmm. parallels definitely clear. And they're about to... Oh, no, wait. Actually, it's not Leonora, but with another one of our previous deviant women in that they're ridiculously and absurdly precocious and talented at a very early age with their writing. Because when she was 16, well, she wrote, she started writing horror stories in her teens. And a couple of the stories that she wrote when she was 15 were published in the sensationalist newspaper Smith's Weekly when she was 16. In one of these stories, there was a man murdered by waxwork figures, a woman who murders her sisters, a sacrifice to a marble statue under the influence of the full moon. So these are obviously like pretty obvious occult themes appearing in her work at a very early age. But the editor was very impressed. He said that never before have we discovered a juvenile author so gifted as is obviously Rosaline Norton. And so he offered her a cadetship and an illustrator position at the magazine. Oh, awesome. Do any of these stories still exist? They, well, you can track them down. It's actually difficult and I will come to that in a little bit. Okay, no worries. I'm jumping the gun. (laughs) I tried to track down some of the stories. I could only get little excerpts. So I actually should mention that a lot of my information about Rosaline comes from her biography by Neville Drury. And he has a few little excerpts in his book. However, just like at school, her illustrations were seen as quite shocking. So she was given the task of making illustrations that were like humorous and witty. But the thing about old Roy, she has quite a unique sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. What she's going to find witty, maybe. Yeah, not so much. So, for example, she produced a picture of women sitting in a circle, biting their babies and laughing. Hilarious. I find that hilarious. (laughs) That's right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. So these images were too provocative for even what was quite a provocative magazine. And they decided to go their separate ways. It seems to me that she maybe got fired, but also that I think she also realized it maybe wasn't the right place for her. So still in her late teens, Rowie moves out of home. Her mother had recently passed away and she went to this artist enclave at the Ship and Mermaid Inn overlooking Circular Quay. Apparently the place was referred to as the Buggery Barn. So we can can imagine what kind of, I guess... What I mean by that is that this was a place of bohemians and social Uh outsiders and artists and other deviants who were all living here. And also overlooking Circular Quay, like this was like a rundown shithole back in the day. I'm trying to imagine where that even would be. I don't know if it's still there. Probably Um, not. I I could probably, yeah, it's just called the Ship and Mermaid Inn. So we could probably look up and see if that's still there. I wonder if it's in the rocks. Maybe it's in the rocks. Maybe in the rocks and it's probably worth like $700 million Oh, it'd be worth so much money. (laughs) You definitely wouldn't have a bohemian enclave of artists. They couldn't afford to be in the rocks. No one could. Um, So to make some money while during this period, she started working as an artist's model for people such as Norman Lindsay. Oh, wow. As well as doing some other general menial labor that artists often do 
to support their art. She was a kitchen maid, waitressing, toy designing. You know. Oh, cool. Yeah, designing like witchy toys Probably. that like uh, that are like animated to bite their babies. Oh, that would be that would be, be great. That would be a great toy. That would be like those toys that in the Nightmare Before Christmas when yes, they when they're packaging the, them up. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. And they, then you unwrap that under the tree, and the children are actually. This is a good Halloweeny kind of an episode. Oh, Even though this is. episode is going to come out just after Halloween. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Because also during this period when she was living at the Ship and Mermaid Inn, she started to study the Theosophists and Carl Jung. So if anyone is aware of these guys. The Theosophists. Let's keep them in mind do. for future deviant women. Lock it away. Yes. There's a little hint. <laughs> so, yeah, the, this is a cult kind of not just a cult magic, spiritual ideas, um, and Jungian philosophy and psychology, which is a, a lot about archetypes. Mm-hmm. Subconscious. So, yeah, the yeah. unconscious, symbolism, and all these kinds of things. She became very particularly interested at this period in archetypal imagery. And from there, her interest moved into broader comparative religion, um, Western esotericism, the Kabbalah, demonology. So basically, all the good stuff. I like it. Yeah, this is all the stuff that I got to study for my PhD, which is one of the reasons I probably <laughs> was really excited to do oh, Rowie. And so this study slowly led to practice and this lifelong, I guess, fascination and um, relationship with the pagan god Pan. Ah. Pan, if you don't know, I know you do, but some may not, is the goat-hoofed, fawn-like god who is the god of the wild, of nature, mountains, the pan music, um, and shepherds. He's also associated with spring and fertility. And so he's, I guess, a little bit of a lech. Mm, Total lech. Yeah, Yeah. known for his affairs with the nymphs. Dalliances. Dalliances, yeah, for a more appropriate word for (laughs) mythology. Echo, Pyrrhinx, and Pythus. He's also, of course, the horned god of witches. Yes. And so I just want to point out how, I guess, unusual this kind of a fascination is for a woman in the 1930s, because most of her peers are like attending the Church of England sermons off marrying good men who buy them houses in the North Shore. So she's not, it's an unusual thing for her to have even kind of, I guess, come into contact with yeah yeah, and to develop this fascination with it's not i mean this is before the counterculture this is Mm. way before so i wonder how she did come across all of this stuff well like i said when she was a child she read a lot she read quite widely yeah so i suspect that a lot of it came through that but she was already drawing these kinds of like mythical creatures Mm. when she was a very small child. So all of these beliefs really started to influence the work that she was doing as an artist. So in her early 20s, she was starting to paint a lot more. So, And she started experimenting with self-hypnosis. So some of her beliefs, I guess, and this will become quite apparent, I think, is she believed that when she was in a trance state, she could open a door to this mythic world. And to her, like, it wasn't just one of the imagination. She believed in a world made up of a, there was a deep inner psychic world and then multiple levels of consciousness. So basically other worlds that exist beyond our ordinary perception. And this is actually really in keeping with a lot of these I hesitate to use the word new age, but that, you know, Kabbalistic and mm. um, Western esoteric ideas of 
life beyond this life that we know where yeah. there's you know these seven spheres of consciousness there are beings that exist in higher realms yeah. and that we do have the ability to communicate with them through yeah. various means like you say it's very it's all very counterculture sort of concepts a long time before yeah. this sort of stuff was actually growing in popularity yeah and in europe this stuff in intellectual circles this stuff was known in europe particularly because we had Figures like Freud and Jung, who I think made this maybe a little bit more, uh, again, I hesitate to say mainstream because it really did was in among intellectual circles, but it's still unusual to see it, I think, in a young woman in her early 20s in Australia. But it's not, it's not like it's not known at all. Yeah. It's just, it's known only among really select people. Mm. Because of course, this is also coming off of the back of the Victorian spiritualist movement, which had resurgences after World War One and World War Two. So mediumistic abilities to communicate with the dead was something that was not unheard of. But I suppose what Rowie's doing that's different is that she's got a very occult heavy version of the world it's not simply that she's communicating with spirits she's talking about pagan gods as being a part of her real world view and she believed that when it she went into these trances she actually did communicate with other gods not just pan she believed that people like um hecate lucifer lilith these were all not just archetypal projections of the self which is something suggested by jung but that these are real mm. and that they are communicating with her. But where Jung uses these figures as these symbolic archetypal projections, like I said, in that sense, you can call them into you, right? You can, you can call on them when you want because the image of them, the symbol of them will help you figure out something about your unconscious, right? Whereas in Rosalind's version of this mythology, these are independent beings, and she can't just call on them when she wants. They come to her when they have something for her to do, when they want something of her. And so when she's going into a trance and she's starting to paint, she's doing automatic drawing. Okay, so we talked, I think, maybe a little bit about this with Florence Cook. Yeah, about automatic, automatic writing. writing. Yeah. Same thing, entering the trance state and allowing another presence to use your hands use your body to communicate yeah so this is kind of calling back to a lot of that florence cook floco stuff yeah as well so we're kind of finishing our season very close to where we began (laughs) book ending definitely i love this stuff i know favorite stuff yeah it's it's great stuff especially like automatic writing and automatic drawing i think it's fascinating because she would talk about how her own handwriting would change and she would see she started communicating with a dead friend and she talked about she recognized that friend's handwriting coming through in the writing and she would also paint while in this trance state and she claimed that these gods that she you know that we've been talking about pan and hecate etc that they would actually paint symbolically what they wanted her to know so she's not necessarily like painting portraits of them she's painting them as they want themselves to be seen if that makes sense do you Mm. know what i mean in an interview with her psychologist lj murphy she said that um, when she first started doing this stuff she quote i had a feeling 
intuitional rather than intellectual, that somewhere in the depths of the unconscious, the individual would contain, in essence, the accumulated knowledge of mankind. Following a surge of curious excitement, my brain would become emptied of all conscious thought. My eyes would shut, and I was merely aware that I was drawing on a blank sheet of paper in front of me. The drawings were quite different in form from the previous ones and full of symbols, many of which were previously unknown to my conscious mind. So when she first started doing this, uh, she worked, I guess, in quite big blocks of time when she was so, like I said, at this in over circular key when she's in her early 20s, that's when she started experimenting with it. And her first experiments, particularly this trance state here that she's talking about, this lasted for about five months of intense trance and automatic drawings. And she says that during this period, she became very detached from the world, but at the same time, very perceptive of it but in like a quite different way and in some of these states she also felt impelled to begin to perform ritual invocations i'm going to come back to her chronological biography but i'll just keep going with where her her occult experiments went for a minute so a few years later when she returned to do more of these kinds of experiments this is when she took up automatic writing and like i said she was communicating with a friend who had passed um, this is where her handwriting was changed and stuff. And this lasted for about nine or 10 months. And she felt like she was able to gain the rough outlines of a philosophical and metaphysical conception of the universe <laughs> and life beyond death. So, oh my God, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh at that, but it's just like, oh, you know what? I've just got, I've just got rough outlines. All the answers to the universe. I've just got some rough outlines for like the meaning of life. Just, just bear with me. <laughs> While I put that together. Yeah. Do you want to hear what some of these are? I do. I've just been listening wrapped in attention because this is your thing (laughs) and I'm enjoying it immensely. So please take me there. So she says that she realized, and I quote again, I had heard that it was possible to achieve the transition to a different realm of existence and live consciously the type of life that is generally experienced after physical death. Okay. Okay. So this became her quote. Nothing grand. No, this became her supreme desire to achieve this. Yeah. Like you said, nothing too big. No, nothing too ambitious. Let's not set the bear too high. (laughs) Like let's just experience existence on this totally other, other plane. Yeah. But she does start working at it and she's experimenting with leaving her body. Okay, that's what you have to do in order to get to this point. So after months of work, she finally entered a state that she describes as being one of cessation, a cataleptic trance. She felt her body's mechanisms pause, her breathing slow, and claims that it was like her body was dissolving. Yeah, right. However, at this point, she was interrupted. Oh, no. And it stopped and it went away and she couldn't get back into it. Oh, no. Yeah. So next, she decided to try experimenting with clairaudience instead. So there's clairvoyance, clairsentience, and clairaudience. Oh, clairaudience. It just sounded to me like it's an audience full of people called Claire. (laughs) Yeah. This is my clairaudience. Hi, Claire's. I'm also Claire's. That's great. All right. Your clairaudience. It actually means that you can hear psychically. Oh, right. Yeah, I get it. So clairvoyance, see psychically, clairsentience, to know psychically, clairaudience, to hear psychically. Now all I can, now all all I can think is three sisters. Three three women called Claire. Claire. Oh, all yeah. The Claire's. I'm clairaudience. I'm clairsentience. <laughs> we could make, they could, there's definitely some kind of like short graphic the three Claire's novel in that. Oh, yeah, like a horror graphic novel about the three Claire's. Oh, my God. 
Oh my god, there totally is. There is. All right, great. Okay, let's just just put that away. The, just put that in the back It's on the back burner. So she felt that Claire audience would allow her a more direct communication with this other realm rather than uh, crude automatic communications. So one day she's hanging out the washing because this is a very mundane task, right? Hanging out the washing, brushing your teeth, having a shower. This is when all of our best ideas come to us because your mind is just in that really blurg state, Mm. right? So this, she hears the voice of this dead friend who had, she had been automatically communicating with who told her that she would soon experience an interplane transition in the next few months, an interplane transition. Holy crap. Yes. I don't even really know what that means, but I kind of do. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what, what is it? Like, what understand that mean? I think as much as we can understand that. Yeah. She understood this stuff far more. Like she dedicated her life to it. I have a very rudimentary understanding of what she's talking about. But yeah, there's different planes of existence. But is that a physical thing? It uh, can't it's be. Metaphysical. It's metaphysical. Yeah, right. That's the whole thing. Okay. It's not physical. This is the physical phys- plane. It can't be physical. And then there's the other planes. Let's go there. We're going to go to there now because what do you know? It happens. Oh my God, it happens. Month later, she claims that she experienced a sensation again of disillusion, okay, where she left her physical body and entered her plasmic body. Ooh. So physical plane, uh-huh. right? Plane, next plane. Yeah. Obviously no, no physicality anymore. Yeah. Now we're plasma. Different kinds of energy, right? This yeah. is the energy continues, but it doesn't, we can't understand it in the way that we understand this, like that I'm touching the green couch. Yeah. Because the green couch has its own, I don't know, just what I'm talking about. You know what I mean. I know what you mean. Because these are tangible things yeah. that are touchable and concrete. That's right. But exactly. on this other plane, it's energy. It's different. And energy moves through concrete things. Energy is not stopped by mm-hmm. solids. But energy it's in- moves. It's interesting, though, because the way she talks about it, there is still a tangibility here. So she says she became aware of new sensations, which apparently, when experienced in the plasmic body, are sensuous to the degree that it renders the physical sensory organs utterly negligible. So thoughts manifest as sensuous experiences, she says, both good and bad, which means that this is a very kind of difficult thing to understand, I think, and for us to kind of even imagine. Yeah. The fact that thoughts can become, thoughts are intangible, right? And we're talking about this transition from a physical realm to a non-physical realm. And yet in this transition, these things that exist as intangibilities for us become something that's tangible because they're sensuous they're something that can be experienced yeah so she's and this is really really complex but basically she she says that she becomes the embodiment of an idea the very essence of a thing so you've lost me yeah (laughs) yeah you've lost me rosaline so you basically i think as far as i can understand you experience emotions so intensely that you become the emotion, if that makes sense. Sure. And apparently, just by the way, contrary to popular belief, sexual sensation still exists, but in a far more advanced and intensified form. Hey, hey. Because when we think, oh, but when you pass, when you die, your spirit's on the other side and nothing's physical, then can you enjoy sex? Is sex even a thing? Apparently, yes. It is. Is the answer Death to that sex. question. Dead sex. <laughs> Yeah, so this is all very, very complex, but really what's important to know is that this is making up the foundation of her inner mythology, of her belief system, and that this drives her work, her whole life. And like we were saying before, this is stuff that's all happening in the 30s and 40s Mm -hmm. for her. 
most of these ideas didn't become really, I guess, more yeah mainstream until the counterculture and new age movements that arose in the 60s. Mm. So she's really quite ahead of her time. Ahead of her time also in the fact that she experimented with LSD to evoke visionary experiences. What a surprise. Mm. And that she used this to enhance her awareness as an artist. But she says that she didn't use it recreationally as she was aware of how dangerous it is. Mm. So, yeah. So, basically, she has Pan at the center of her mythology. She has all of these other gods in her world. She goes into trance states and her artwork is a manifestation of that. Okay. So now I'm going to come back to her, her more tangible life, her physical life. All right. Yeah. So this is what she's starting to experiment with when she's at the Hootie ship and, and the mermaid. Blowfish. At the <laughs> Hootie and the Blowfish Inn. Hootie and the Blowfish Inn? Is that at what the, it's called? Yes. Okay, good. At the Ship and Mermaid Inn. So is she selling her art? Nearly. Okay. All Nearly. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're going we're heading to a very important part of her actual career. So Everything that I described then took place over a number of years. Mm, but Hootie and the Blowfish Inn. At Hootie and the Blowfish Inn, she's just starting on this journey. And in the meantime, she does have a quote-unquote normal. Because like I say, while she's getting into all of this stuff, everybody, all of her peers are, you know, going to social gatherings and marrying rich men on mm. mar- moving to the North Shore and having babies. Getting on with normal life. quote-unquote normal life. So she's not actually totally deviant in this respect. Because in 1940, she marries Bursford Lionel Conroy, who was her boyfriend for five years. They met when um, she was 17 in 1935. So they get hitched, but unlike her contemporaries, they shunned the suburbs for the road and they set out hitchhiking across Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they travelled down from Sydney to Melbourne and then they went back up the coast to Brisbane and to Cairns. So they were hitchhiking and sometimes when she went hitchhiking, she took her cat. Oh, my God. Graham. Oh, Graham the cat. Yeah. I love it. So I thought you'd enjoy that. Yes. Um, Did he go in a little bag on her back? I mean, I assume that he went in some kind of a, like a carry cage box. That was my dream. My dream is just to travel around with a cat strapped to me. So Conroy, though, when they got back from the hitchhiking trip, he enlisted in the army as a commando. So this is just World War II time. So he's going to do his duty in uh, New Guinea. Oh, no. Yeah, she's not very impressed by the idea. And he also, like, left her living in this stable by herself. In a stable. In a stable, apparently, yeah. So she's like, Like, nah, like the Virgin Mary. Yeah, not keen. Got to move into a boarding house called Maranjaru in the Rocks. In the, uh, yeah, another buggery barn type situation. Full of <laughs> artists and barn. bohemians. Oh, my God. Yeah. She left Conroy. They didn't technically divorce until 1951, but she is, it's over. Relationship's done. Um, and instead she starts illustrating for another magazine called Pertinent. And she started to get some recognition. There were major articles on her work, early work with the magazine. One of them stated, few, if any other Australian artists have aroused as much astonishment as well as technical controversy as Miss Rosaline Norton. And another stated that apart from the alleged unorthodoxy of theme and outlook, her work was undeniably advanced far beyond the ordinary. It merits more interest and attention than it has been afforded in the past. Yeah, so she's starting to get some critical attention, which is good. This is also where she meets the artist Gavin Greenless, who was a poet who was first published 
in the magazine Pertinent at the age of 13. Oh, another precocious little juvenile fuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In my <laughs> notes, I have, what a precocious little shit. <laughs> um, so, and he was quite a bit younger than Rosaline. He was born in 1930 in Melbourne. So he's 13 years younger than Roy. And he got into mm. surrealism at the ripe old age of 12. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and so he was a surrealist poet. So they hit it off and became friends because they, I think they just really admired each other's work and they were inspired by and kept inspiring each other's work. And so in 1949, they hitchhiked together along with Jeffrey, the cat. I thought he was Graham. Oh, the cat's Jeffrey. Uh, So they hitchhiked with Jeffrey to Melbourne so that Rosaline can have her first proper major exhibition she had 49 paintings and was scheduled to run from the 1st to the 29th of august 1949 however Uh however things didn't go so well two days after opening the police showed up Uh four of her paintings named witch's sabbath it's a big surprise yeah Lucifer, yep, Triumph, cool. and Individuation. Oh, those last two are not so... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> were deemed to be obscene oh. and that they would incite unhealthy sexual appetites in those who saw them. Oh, wow. Yeah. But who had... Like, the, the police wouldn't just turn up. Like, someone must someone have Someone had to tip them... Yeah, someone would have tipped them off. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it was only on, like, day two of the yeah. exhibition. So, obviously, there's probably some, you know, conservative Melbourne housewife who's got, oh, I see, there's a lovely exhibition opening. Let's go... I will go and let's go to the ex- Oh, let's go to the exhibition, Graham. Oh, yeah, yeah right. I love it. Let's go to the, the exhibition. Graham. Yeah, well, like... I think that, like, in uh, 1949 in Grahams. Melbourne, there's probably a bunch of Grahams. Yeah, so, they've, yeah, they've probably went to the exhibition and then just been like, that man has a serpent phallus. This is disgusting. Because <laughs> she did paint a lot of serpent phallus demons. That's a big... I'd actually Who doesn't? Just... Hey, I always paint serpent phallus demons. <laughs> That's what I do with my spare time. But what? When not I'm not everyone... living in a tent with cats. Yeah. We... <laughs> but not everybody was super critical. One critic, Paul, that's all his name, name <laughs> is. Graham. It's just Paul. Yeah. Wrote that despite their impurity and depictions of evil, there was nothing disgusting about them. Not even those which depict horrible, terrifying, even repulsive ideas or images. One and all, the drawings and paintings shown are perfect in drawing and design. So... So she's got skill. Yeah, they're like, technically, you're a good artist. Yeah. Even though your subject matter is obscene. Well, I was just looking at pictures up before because I had never heard of her or seen her art until you mentioned it. And I mean, like, yeah, she can draw. She can paint. Yeah, they could. There's there's a lot of demons, a lot of gods and goddesses, a lot of sexual imagery and it's uh, yeah like you say it's a lot provocative of, it's provocative definitely yeah. Yeah. yeah but that doesn't mean that there's no skill behind that. absolutely yeah she was a talented artist and writer nevertheless norton was charged under the police offenses act of 1928 mm, that old chestnut yeah but she won the case you know how she won the case <gasps> how tell me how did she throw jeffrey the cat at them um and- after that she tried that first didn't work <laughs> didn't work But then, based on the argument that the images in The History of Sexual Magic, a book that the Australian censors permitted, were more obscene than her paintings. Oh, that's amazing. Good job. Well done. (laughs) So she's, yeah. Well, that was her lawyer that 
and came up with that, but still, still good job. Yeah. She could have suggested it. Maybe she suggested it. Yeah. I mean, she definitely owned that book. Yeah. I totally. don't know that for sure, but I'm going to say I'm definitely gonna say, yeah. anyway. <laughs> so by the time they returned to Sydney, Norton and Greenless were lovers. Mm. And the relationship seems to have been built on a very shared artistic affinity. Apparently, they also had a very similar ridiculous and whimsical sense of humour. You, uh, you don't say. Yeah. Well, I think that, like, Rowie, from what I've, I can understand from what I've read is that she basically thought that everything was hilarious, that everything that everyone wrote about her – she was just like, oh, my God, they're calling me a witch. That's hilarious. Like, oh, they think this is obscene. That's hilarious. So she, I think she took it all pretty well. Took all it in the, their stride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so did he. And they played on the ridiculousness as well. So. Well, because I was going to say, so in terms of her as an artist, like how much of her actual biography does she play into that as well? Because, Definitely. I mean, and this was something that we talked about a bit with Edmonia Lewis as well, the way that your personal identity gets conflated with your art, but at the same time it helps to sell your art, yes. you know? Yes, So in her case, how she is as a person, like she's a big character, yes. you know, she's no shrinking violet. So this persona, and I mean not just persona because this is who she is, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's also a, a persona or an identity that plays into her as an artist that's going to yes. help her sell her art. Well, this surely. is the thing because at this point in her life, she would not have called herself a witch. Mm. She was an occultist. You know, she, she what she did was very, what well, according to her, very serious magic. Like this is serious business. Yeah, And not to say that witchcraft doesn't have – affinities with that and I think that she would have associated a lot of what she did with that but she didn't see herself as practicing witchcraft she saw herself as practicing a different kind of magic the press however when all of these exhibitions were starting and then particularly a little bit later in her life they did start calling her a witch and she definitely was like okay yeah you're saying yeah. a witch all right embrace yeah. it I'm, I'm a witch yeah, embrace yeah. It I am use, a witch embrace it and use yep, it exactly and so she started to wear pointed hats she has ah. these brilliant pointy eyebrows and like her, her teeth are not straight, but they look very witchy. So, and she starts to, like I said, when she was born, she had all these kind of birthmarks and things. And she starts, to, I think, to probably reclaim those and yeah. say like, yeah, these are symbols of my, like, I am a witch and I have always been a witch. And this witch, I guess this witchiness really starts to come to the fore in this period when they move back to Sydney. So this is when she moves into King's Cross. King's Cross is the most infamous of her like associations. She is after all known as the witch of King's Cross. Mm. They moved into a house where And King's Cross, just to say for those people who don't know, King's Cross is an area of Sydney that is rather infamous and it has is been infamous for forever. forever. Yeah. It's now fairly gentrified, more gentrified than it ever used to it's be. It's still like the, where all the clubs are and a lot of spend a lot of time clubbing there in my 20s. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. It really was the heart of a lot of counterculture stuff as well later on in Sydney's history too. Yeah, definitely. And at this point, there was a lot of tumble-down terrace houses. So like you said, now it's a little bit more gentrified, but back then it was like a a hovel. And the house that they moved into I think was really cheap because a barrister had recently committed suicide in it. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so they moved into the basement, but then they later took up residence in the attic. And so Norton began decorating the home with occult murals. The furnishings were basically exactly as you'd expect of bohemian artists and occultists. Drab hangings, animal bones, cobwebs, the whole shebang. There was a sign in the corridor that named the flat as home to a female vagrant. (laughs) And a placard on the door stated, Welcome to the house of ghosts, goblins, werewolves, vampires, witches, wizards, and poltergeists. Wow, it's nearly Halloween and this is so relevant. <laughs> yeah. So she's really, like you said, she's playing into, well, not even playing into it because she hadn't had as much, she wasn't in the tabloid presses yet, but she's definitely not shy about this identity yeah. and she really is using it to start of make a character for herself. And she started to become really well known in King's Cross because there is a really wide assortment of different types of people. A few really interesting characters that I would like to come back to for other deviant women yes. episodes in the future. There's Definitely. a couple of, I think there's two women in particular, or three actually, three women in particular that I really want to come back to. Oh, I can think of a few women too. So. Yeah. Because <laughs> this was, like you said, it's the red light district. And so lots of these circles of very open-minded people, very artistic people, deviant people. And she started exhibiting her paintings in some local coffee shops and this, her reputation is starting to grow at this period. And her and Gavin became really popular and people started inviting them to a lot of social gatherings and parties and they held a lot of social gatherings and parties as well. People would just drop by the house knowing that they could always find, you know, really interesting conversation or partake in some of the stranger goings-ons in the house. Even the police would just drop by to <laughs> hang out. Until to hang out or to just sort of... See how everything was... Well, no, apparently at first it was quite friendly. They were actually Mm -hmm. like, thought she was just an interesting character until 1941 when that old vagrancy charge shows up again. The house was seen as a den of iniquity and the vice squad showed up and arrested the couple for vagrancy. Mm. Yeah, so vagrancy basically is just getting arrested for not having a job. Yeah. And so because they're artists and I guess they're working on commission and they're selling paintings that way, that was not seen as being a job. So they were forced to get more acceptable means. And this led them to the publisher, Wally Glover. And this is where that book comes into it that I was you oh, know, okay. um, talking about. So he was impressed by their work and he actually was only looking to hire like freelance journalists, but instead he decided to publish a book of their combined art. So it would have Rosaline's occult art and Gavin's mystical poetry. Wally said when he signed the contract that all sorts of good fortunes came his way when they signed it. So almost as though this was all by design, he was evicted from his tiny, like he apparently had this really shitty rabbit warrenny office and he ended up inheriting like this whole floor of a building. He inherited awesome. furniture from a colleague who was going to prison and <laughs> Rosaline celebrated their good fortune by painting a huge mural of the demon Baphomet on the wall. As so, you do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, welcome to the office. <laughs> welcome to the demonic office. Yeah. So the book was called The Art of Rosaline Norton and it was published in 1952. Even though it contains Gavin's poetry, I don't know why it's <laughs> oh, yeah. not. Like he it's, just gets, forget it's him. It's The Art of Rosaline Norton and some poetry and by And some Gavin. poetry by this <laughs> Well, that's good. I like that because usually you'll find that's the other way around. Yeah. Usually it's like, here's a book yeah, by a man. by this man. And don't worry about the woman that's in it. The, yeah, yeah, The Art of His yeah. Lady Friend. Don't worry about that. <laughs> it's really interesting. This book was really popular in some respects and also obviously not that in others. So the American consul ordered a copy 
that was bound in bat skin. Oh my God, what? Yes. And the Pakistani embassy invited Rosaline and Gavin to create an erotic book based on Pakistani temple art. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not down with bat skin books. No. I'm not down with that at all. I don't, but however, I mean But the other interesting. But the other one. Yeah. Great. Not everyone was so cool about the book though. The postmaster general threatened prosecution because some of the female figures had wait for it. What? Gasp. What? Pubic hair. Oh fuck. No way. Oh my god. Jesus. This is obscene. Pubes. We must this is the worst thing ever. We must what? ban it. That Pubic is hair. so lame. That's really, really yeah. quite sad. Australia in the 50s was very a conservative? very conservative place. Mm. Very, very conservative. No, no pubic hair. No pubic hair um, for you. Because newspapers said that it was the most indecent publication in Australian history. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I really want to get my hands on a copy of this Yeah, book. I'm like, where can we find this book? Yeah, you can actually. I think it's in the State Library. Oh, great. It's in a few. I found it on uh, Trove. There are a few libraries in Australia that have a copy. I don't know about internationally, but you can find it if you're willing to go to the right places. Let's yes. hunt it up. Yes. So we'll Wally, make that. We'll make that a holiday thing that we have to see do. if we can yeah. track it down. Yeah, and then we'll post pictures of it. Sweet. So Wally was charged with producing an obscene publication, and Rosaline had to appear in court to defend her work, which she did by explaining the word's connection with Jungian and Freudian psychology. Good move. Yeah, so she referred to, like, the fusion between the conscious and unconscious mind Uh as part of her court appearance. In the end, Wally Glover was charged £5 plus costs, as two of Rosaline's paintings, The Adversary and Fohat, were deemed obscure and an offence to chastity and delicacy. Yeah, fair enough. Isn't that so weird that that can be a thing that you can... Chastity do people get charged with, like, yeah, with a, sure that an offence to chastity anymore? No. What does that even mean, an offence to chastity? That's so strange. And delicacy. Do you know what? I feel like these are things where the judge is just like, I don't know what you people are talking about. This, <laughs> yeah. is, this is weird. This is I a, don't. This is too obscure. <laughs> I don't understand uh, it. Just give me five pounds and get the fuck yeah, out of my courtroom. Yeah. Unfortunately, like five pounds, even back then, wasn't it was quite a. It, it was quite a lot, but it wasn't like an absurd amount of money. What the more of the problem is is that the book became banned. It was banned overseas, which also meant that importing the book back into Australia was also technically banned and Glover couldn't advertise it because now it was like it was too obscene to advertise so even though it was popular it wasn't sellable and so it ended up really ruining Glover's career oh no yeah he ended up having to close up shop basically so and he not, was financially ruined so not really that much good fortune no not as yet it had looked like it was going no, to be no unfortunately mm-hmm. no. but for rosaline she began to get a bunch of commissions well work for her so she's okay notoriety worked for her because glover actually purchased the copyright to her paintings and so when he was charged and when he declared bankruptcy he lost the copyright until the 80s he wasn't allowed to get it back Rosalind's reputation, meanwhile, began to grow. And this is where she became really, like, this is where the Witch of King's Cross, like, in the tabloid press comes from. So I think largely because of the notoriety that she developed 
because of the book and the court case, she started to gather all these fans who would hang out in the coffee shops that her art was in and that she used to frequent. And they'd ho- like hang out hoping to, to see her. And sometimes they'd do things like order coffee with bat's blood what? in the meantime. Because they were like, oh, she's a witch. We're witches too. Let's get some bat's blood in our coffee. But like, did they actually have bat? Well, what this are you is talking the thing. about? Well, they were all just like, oh, I want Rosaline to think I'm a really cool witch too. But this is the 50s and no one actually knows what real witchcraft is <laughs> they're all just drawing their associations of witchcraft based on these double double toil exactly. and trouble yeah exactly and so they're doing really absurd things like ordering bat's blood with their coffee and of course the coffee shop people were like no what the fuck are you talking, no, what the about? Fuck are you talking about no i'm not going to serve you that and <laughs> Rowan, where am i and where Rowan am I doesn't that? drink bat's blood <laughs> coffee she was an animal rights activist good I'm she pleased. would never have Except done that for the bat skin she book. really hated the idea that she actually really disliked that part of her reputation because she loved animals so much. So she was very upset with the fact that people associated with her with kind of like these animal cruelty practices. Mm. But yeah, they started like hanging out in front of her flat and sometimes they would steal like the, you know how she had those signs and stuff out the, the oh, front of like yeah. they'd like steal them once they stole like her door number. So newspapers. Her rubbish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're doing all these kinds of weird things. I can imagine like the 1950s version of like goth teens. Yeah. Just like hanging out the front of her house. Yeah. Mm. Like you said, rifling through her trash. Yeah. Stalking her. Stalking her at the coffee shop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so newspapers were the tabloid press became more and more interested in her and so while she was developing all these fans of course as her fame and notoriety grew it's only a matter of time before somebody points the finger at her and accuses her of practicing some kind of genuinely dark magic Uh like the black sabbath the black mass right because remember that what she's doing is so yes she is now associating herself with witchcraft and occult practices But she's not like a witch in that sense of the traditional medieval version of a witch is somebody who is associated with the devil Mm. and sacrificing and all those kinds Mm. of things. She's She's not like a Satanist. No, exactly. She's Mm. not a Satanist. Mm. And this is really important. Mm. because Because they're easily conflated. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what started to happen at this time. One day on the streets, this woman named Anna Karina Hoffman. What? Yeah. How do you get that name? <laughs> I know. She was a vagrant from New Zealand. She was arrested one day after swearing at a policeman. Ooh. And she claimed... <laughs> like a... Yeah. The, 50, the fucking... I know. The like conservatism of the... Oh, oh anyway. anyway. She claimed that the cause of her kind of outbreak of hysteria was that she had attended the Black Mass with Rosaline. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And then... So the tabloid press picked up on this story quite enthusiastically. Like you said, started to call her an actual Satanist. And then another Sydney paper claimed that photographs of witches and wizards in gowns performing an inversion of the Christian mass at Rowie's flat had been found where a rooster had been sacrificed to the devil. Now this infuriated Rosaline, because like I said, she's an animal lover, always had been, and would never sacrifice a rooster. Never sacrifice Mm. an animal. And also, like, they're claiming that she is worshipping the devil. And so she had to disconnect these gods that she does genuinely invoke in her rituals and genuinely has a relationship with. Like, she had to disconnect Pan from Satan and just be like, 
you can't conflate these. Pan is not Satan. These are not the same things. I am a devotee of Pan and he is a God of nature Mm. and a God of like, you know, music and love and sexuality. Uh, Very different things. Cause she did actually perform sex. Like she was a very sexually uh, liberated woman. And this is probably another, I believe it, a part of that. Well, apparently though, it wasn't actually until a little bit of later life that she, became quite um sexually deviant if i i mean i say that in the context of 1950s yeah. australian yeah, conservatism yeah. of yeah. sexually deviant and not what i think apparently i'm just gonna go back a little bit she claims that she actually had her first sexual experiences at 12 because a boy suggested it but she didn't really care for it so she didn't do it again until she was 17 and as a young woman she actually wasn't really that interested in sex so she had relationships with men like i said she was with her first boyfriend for five years and they got married but it was just pretty you know ordinary and vanilla she was just like casual like pretty impassive but as she got a bit older she became i suppose or maybe it's actually just discovered a different type of sexuality and so despite the fact that yes her two main relationships were with men she was bisexual and her and gavin did have like a more open sexual relationship and Apparently, she enjoyed watching and participating in sex with gay men as she felt that she could take a more active role and that they allowed her to have a very active role. She enjoyed sadomasochism. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she was with male partners, she enjoyed pain and having them overpower her. But when she was with female partners, she liked to be very dominant. So she's oscillates, uh, I guess, on that sadomasochistic scale Mm. and they did have i guess it was a very open fluid sexuality that she and gavin shared with other close you know people in her circle but that of course doesn't go down so well in conservative 1950s sydney no and i don't know how much people really knew about her sex life but the worst of her kind of i guess needing to defend herself publicly happened when the these two men Francis Hona and Raymond Asia stole photographs from Rowie's flat that showed her and Gavin in ceremonial robes engaging in quote-unquote unnatural acts so it turns out that the photos were taken as part of Rowie and Gavin's like typical hilarious party antics so they were like a joke from her birthday party where they had dressed up in robes and what I mean it doesn't say what the photos actually depicted, but I imagine some kind of sex. Yeah, act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever it might be, yeah. that in their world was all very fun and normal and they're all enjoying yeah. themselves. They're all having a, a good laugh. A good time. Yep. Nevertheless, obviously, because they're wearing robes, I imagine. And look, anything that's probably not a heterosexual missionary sex was probably deemed as quote unquote unnatural acts. So whatever it was that they were doing was deemed as being like super subversive. So what happened was it did emerge that the two men had stolen the photographs and so they were jailed for this. But once this truth emerged, it still didn't change the way the press wrote about her. And so she was again kind of forced to defend against yeah. herself against this really twisting of facts. Meanwhile, this composer called Sir Eugene Gossens, he was an Englishman who was a conductor with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. He came across the book Art of Rosaline Norton and decided to get in touch with her. So he had an interest in paganism and he started to join Rowie and Gavin as a part of their magical group. They all became friends. 
This is something I hope you will like. They discussed producing a musical version of Edgar Allan Poe's Fall of the House of Usher. Oh, I do like that. Yeah. So Eugene would Why have Why didn't been... they ever do it? I know. It would have been amazing. Oh, so amazing. Eugene was to compose. Gavin would write the libretto and Rowie would paint the scenery. Imagine what that would have been like. That's amazing. It would have been so cool. Unfortunately, it didn't get off the ground. Mm. What did get off the ground, however, was the sexual intensity oh, okay, great. Yeah, between right. Rowie and Eugene. Mm. And he would write her some really intense letters talking about he wanted to indulge in intimate rituals with her. <laughs> I'd love to get a letter from a man like that. Yeah. He's like, hello, I would like to indulge in some intimate rituals with you. <laughs> sure. So I'm on board. <laughs> Let's do it. So they had a relationship. I don't know if the relationship was just between Rowie and Eugene or if Gavin was involved as well. But either way, they're probably doing all these things that to them are just, again, super fun Everyone's consensual. It's just some good time, good time consensual, deviant sex. <laughs> you know, who cares? Yeah. Everyone's consensual. However, one day, when returning to Sydney from London after some engagement, Eugene was met on the tarmac by a group of policemen. He was reportedly carrying over 800 pornographic photos oh with him. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Along with ritual masks and incense. Oh, dear. Oh. So it didn't look good for no, Eugene. He it was, didn't look good at all. No, he was charged, of course. Because it was illegal to bring but again, stuff like that into Australia. That's something else where I feel like somebody must have tipped the police yeah, off. Yeah, they must have because they met him there. turn up at the tarmac and be like, oh, can we just have a look at what's in your bag? Yeah. A group of, on, not just like one policeman, like a and squad. It's not like, yeah, it's not like just he's gone through customs and customs has casually no. said, can I look in your bag? They were like waiting for him to get off the plane yeah, to right. arrest him. So yeah, someone tipped them off. Somebody stitched him up. Yep. Mm. Yep. And this ruined his career too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, Rosalind doesn't leave a good trail behind no, her. No, doesn't. She's doing all right. But this is the thing. It's not like she's doing anything to cause trouble for these people. Oh, she's it's not just going out of her like, way to ruin them. No. Everybody, they all just happen to be involved in this subversive community that was too ahead of its time yeah. for 1950s Sydney. They didn't like it at all. Oh, by the way, Eugene was married to a woman who was 20 years younger than him and she left him after oh. all of this controversy. Well, there you go. So at the same time, Gavin's health started to decline. He had some really bad mental health issues and they started to become more intense. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic and admitted. He was apparently grew quite emaciated and even, I don't know if, how true this is because, again, it's 1950s diagnosis, but apparently he had multiple personalities. But it does seem that he had some kind of schizophrenic disorder. Rosaline continued to support him. She would visit him quite frequently. So she moved out of King's Cross when he was admitted, um, and she actually moved into a house that was owned by his parents. And oh, this is, yeah, one day when on release, he attacked Rosaline with a knife. Ooh. The police found him at the kitchen sink, running it across his throat. <gasps> oh. Yeah. And when they asked if he had killed Rosaline, he replied, not yet, but it's time to kill her. <gasps> and then he pointed to the basement. Oh, God. And said that she's down there. So this is really fucked up, actually. So the police went down, found her there at an altar praying to Pan. Okay. Let's just imagine... In a situation, if you were a policeman and you walked into a house, you've got a man with a mental health disorder who is having a schizophrenic episode, is attacking his partner. You then find the partner praying. At an altar. 
Well, no, but this is what I mean. If she had been praying in front of a cross. Oh, yeah. They would have just been like, oh, you yeah. poor woman. Yeah. We're here. It's okay. We've arrested him. Yeah. We're going to take him back to hospital. You're safe now. Yeah. That's what would have happened if she had been praying at a, you know, a Christian altar. But she was praying at the altar of Pan. So instead, they arrest her too. Oh, my God. It's really fucked up. Both of them were charged with vagrancy. He's a mental health patient out on release. Is he okay? Didn't, having he a not, schizophrenic episode. Has he not injured himself? They charged him with vagrancy. Well, I don't know if he was just running it across his, his throat or, or if he was he actually, actually cutting himself. himself. But, yeah, either way, fucking vagrancy? That's a bullshit charge anyway because it's a way of punishing homeless, unemployed people. But when you walk into a domestic violence situation with someone who's mentally ill... This is, it's just, oh, it just it really fucked up. So Gavin ended up getting a month in jail for wielding a knife with intent to kill. So his charge mm. was wielding a knife with intent to kill. He was charged with one month. Whether or not he should have even been charged or whether he just should have been readmitted to hospital is a totally different matter. Even if he was in completely fine mental health, a month? Yeah. What the fuck, Australia? You will charge them for vagrants? Like, oh my... Anyway, she... I love how worked up you're getting. This is great. She was acquitted for vagrancy and instead was charged with using indecent language. What? Yes. All right. So, honestly, what the fucking fuck, dudes? (laughs) Jesus. So, she ended up moving in with her sister, Cecily, to recover, which I think is quite understandable. Nice house. Apparently she started to spend a lot more time outdoors and in nature. There was apparently quite a a lovely old Morton Bay fig tree that she used to sit under in the sun and meditate. So that sounds like an excellent thing to do to me. I'd like to spend more time meditating (laughs) under Morton Bay fig trees. They're my favorite trees. So we're into the sixties now. So after she had started recover, she started to just sort of make her live her best life as a witch. She really took <laughs> on this persona. Yeah, she took on the persona that the press had given her and ran with it. She started um, making hexes and charms for people on commission. Ah, oh, well, why not? And developed a following of several hundred pagans. Wow. So I guess this is the 60s, so this stuff is starting to become Come more to the fore. wide range. Mm. Yeah, yeah, people know about it a little bit more. As we move into the 70s, though, her image is starting to fade. The public were taking less and less interest in her, so she had to ramp things up. She told reporters that, of course, witches sometimes had to use harpful magic, otherwise they wouldn't survive. And she, you know, told them about how she practiced the four major witches' sabbats, Candlemas, May Eve, Lammas, and Halloween. But, of course, I think just using the word witches' sabbats would make everybody think of, oh, my God, she's sacrificing things to the, you know, to the, to devil. the devil and not actually know these are pagan, Rituals. like, holidays. Yeah. Yeah. So by the 1970s, Australia was in the grips of this, like, anti-occult mania. 1974, the release of the film The Exorcist helped to spread this, as well as the influence of the counterculture movement. People went fucking crazy. For only the second time in a Protestant country since the Middle Ages, the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney established the Commission of Inquiry into the Occult. Oh, wow. And their agenda was to inquire into the current fascination with the occult, especially among young people, examine the biblical basis of spiritualism and associated practices, as well as provide warnings against dabbling 
something in the occult and examine the various current expressions of the occult and its effects. So, of course, the media went occult mad once again. Do you know what? All of these things, I actually enjoy researching all of those things. <laughs> but sure. not from the point of view that they of, want. Of, of, from, not from their point of yeah, view. Yeah, from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All really interesting stuff. Exactly. It is. But they were like, so in the 80s, America had satanic panic. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is Australia's version of that. Yeah. And so, of course, the press went to Rowie for comment because she is like Sydney's, you know, Archbishop of the Occult. That's right. Um, What's the opposite of a bishop? Bishop Abbess. 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 Yeah, the Arch, the Abbess, Arch Abbess of, of the, of the occult. occult. And she actually agreed with some of the findings of their report, mostly about how dangerous the occult is. But, of course, again – just like I think you mean, she's coming up from the opposite side. Yeah. So rather than being like, oh, the occult is very dangerous, everyone needs to stay away from it, she's just like, yes, if you don't know what you're doing and you don't educate yourself properly and you just start playing around with rituals, it is dangerous. You might accidentally evoke a presence that you don't understand and you won't know how to control and you can bring bad things into your life. Mm. So she did agree that it's dangerous, but I don't think that she agreed in the same way that they wanted her yeah, like, or, yeah. you know, wanted people to be like, no, stay away. It's Satan. And he is getting you to do his will and against God. She was just like, no, like the occult's great, but you really have to know what you're doing. Yeah. Otherwise this is dangerous. But this was one of her last public appearances and she started to become more and more private as she got older. She lived in a flat and in the same block as her sister, surrounded by her paintings, her easels and her cats. I was going to say, and her cats. Her cats. And she listened to a lot of classical music. Unfortunately, in 1978, she became quite sick. She had developed cancer in her colon, oh. and in 1979, she was admitted to the Roman Catholic Sacred Heart Hospice for the Dying at St. Vincent's Hospital. What a depressing name for the I dying. Know. For the dying. Yeah, it's mm. really depressing. Yeah. And also palliative a, care. Let's just go with palliative, palliative care, care, everyone. That's where she ended up. And apparently she, she said to a friend, I came into this world bravely. I'll go out bravely. Oh. And it would have been brave because she was in a Catholic hospital surrounded by yeah. crucifixes. I was going to say she was in a Catholic hospital. <laughs> Like, yeah. So it's probably not her ideal place to no. die. After she did die in 1979, many of her paintings were auctioned and Wally, her old publisher, was able to regain the copyright to her paintings and he went on to republish The Art of Rosalind Norton. This time things went much better. Oh, good. Um, a thousand general copies were made and 50 special editions in just red leather this time, not bat and skin good. leather. Good. And a two-act play about her life was produced, but apparently they took many creative liberties. Oh, it yeah. was more inspired by the figure of Rosaline Norton, yeah. I think. It was called Rosaline, Wicked Witch of the Cross, and it premiered <laughs> at the Tom Mann Theatre in Sydney in 1982. Oh. So she was 62 when she died, and poor old Gavin was... While he did get to go and see the play about her life, he died himself shortly after. He was only in his 50s when he died, which Mm. is sad. So that's basically the story of Rosalind Norton. It's a good story. Yeah, it is. I think she's awesome. I think she's amazing. Super interesting. So ahead of her time. So brave. So subversive. So deviant. Yeah. So I think that she is probably one of Australia's most interesting subversive deviant women and i I didn't even know about her until you told me about her i think it's really surprising because she seems to have been really famous in her own time and i don't know i don't know if it's a generational thing like i wonder if people of her same generation would remember her but i didn't know i I stumbled across her and was just like 
whoa, who who is this woman? She is amazing. And her art is very interesting. I don't know if it's to everyone's taste as it was in its time as well, but it's definitely worth having a look at. There's also a little tiny few minute video on YouTube with a a very short interview with her. But what's really great about it is that I think it must've been filmed in the fifties or sixties. It's in black and white. And they're like, it's a special about King's cross, I think. And so you just get to have this little glimpse into what King's cross was like. And then there's a, an interviewer sitting down with Rosaline in one of these coffee shops. And um, you just get to see her with her pointy eyebrows and her crooked teeth and her subversive smile. She's she's pretty fabulous. Thank you so much for introducing me to her yeah. and introducing all our listeners to her as well. So go out and find out more. And like I said, I did take a lot of that from her biography by Neville Drury. So that's a good read. Thanks, Neville. It's not very long either. Oh, okay. Thanks, Neville, for keeping it short and sweet. That's right. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of our... Penultimate. Penultimate deviant woman. Deviant woman. That's right. Episode. Yeah. So where are we going to be next time? Where are for we going to be next time? Oh, it's me. Yeah. I'm, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask you, where are we going for our last episode oh, of the season? So our last episode of the season, I'm excited about it because this is actually when Lauren first said to me, let's do this podcast. She was the second person I thought to do. My first is Isabel Eberhardt. I was like, I've got to do Isabel I was going to say, I feel like we're both bookending our beginnings and endings in a very similar way because yeah. I started with Florence, who's one of my favourite mediums. I have favourite <laughs> mediums. So many favourite And mediums. now Rosalind Norton yeah. is another of my favourite occult medium yeah. women who are two of my favourite deviant women of all time. And you're doing the same thing. I am because I started with one of my favourite deviant women and I'm ending with one of my other favourite. So join us for our very last episode of 2017. I just do want to make that clear. (laughs) Not not ever, but of 2017. Yes. But before we do finish up this week, we said we had another announcement. We do have another exciting announcement. Here it comes. Play the announcement music. Announcement time! It's It's here! Announcement! In 2018. We will be coming back with a bang. Drum roll. We have Deviant Women, the live show. Live show. The live show. Live show. I embrace your singing. Thank you. Yep. That's a beautiful song. (laughs) So for those of you who already live in Adelaide. Or will be traveling to Adelaide for the Fringe, which we encourage. Definitely. And even if you you live in Australia, that's easier to do. But even if you live somewhere else. Who would like to come? It is totally worth the trip. Oh, the Fringe in Adelaide is the best. It's just the best time of the year. It is an amazing, amazing festival. And even if it's not just to see us, you should just come anyway because the Fringe is fabulous. There's so much other stuff on too, but come and see us. Yes. And the dates you need to know are... We will be appearing at The Jade on Flinders Street in Adelaide on Monday the 26th of February and Wednesday the 14th of March. So there's a good block of time there to do some wine tours in between. Check out a whole bunch of other Check shows. Check out a bunch of other stuff. And then bookend your trip with two fabulous live shows Because like us. we said, two different women. And we won't give away too much about that just yet. So, of course, if you want to keep up to date with all of that information, we will be publicizing it on deviantwomenpodcast.com, our website. We will also be on Twitter where you can always find us, of course, with at Deviant Women, or you can like us on Facebook if that is your preferred communication social media method. 
method. method. And if you like the podcast, then please leave us a review. You can listen to us, of course, on iTunes and Stitcher and tune in and you can leave us reviews. We love our reviews. If you want some merch, then jump onto our Etsy store to pick up a t-shirt or an enamel pin. And over the summer break, while we are preparing our live show, if you miss us, and if you feel you want some Deviant Women content to tide you over until 2018. Maybe you, need, you have some holes you need filled. Holes in history you, that need, you need filled. Then please get online at Patreon and you can join up and support us as a Patreon supporter. And you will receive our Patreon content yes. that we'll still be doing over, over the, the summer. summer. So that's all from us for this week. Um, we hope you enjoyed our... Uh, witchiness with Rosaline Norton. I enjoyed witchiness with Rosaline Norton <laughs> so much. And we'll be back with our last show of the year. So exciting. Next fortnight. We and look forward to it. Thank you as always to Brendan for the sound and to India Hui for the music. And we'll see you later. See ya. Bye.